So, welcome to Faded Mates, everyone. Welcome. We are here talking about a fan favorite, Kiss of a Demon King, starring the Sorceress Sabine and the Prince, Demon Prince? King? Rydstrom King? No, Deposed King. Deposed King, sorry. Deposed King. It's right there in the title. For the first time ever, I feel like I'm like, I have got it with this title. Kiss of a Demon King. It it all falls apart the next one. Just FYI. (laughs) The one I've been calling Frozen IAD. (laughs) Yeah. First of all, I'm Sarah McLean. I write books and I read books. I'm Jen Reads Romance. I read books. I talk about books with Sarah and pretty much anybody else will talk about books with me, to be honest with you. And yeah, it's Kiss of a Demon King. I have not gotten this title wrong, not even once. No, nope. Not even once. Me neither. And as you know, it's kind of a thing now. Our producer is constantly saying, you guys, now I'm just leaving in the ma- the mistakes on the titles because it's a thing. <laughs> I feel like he's going to make a super cut of like two things. One, us fucking up the titles and two, us trying to clap and <laughs> like count and clap at the same time. And it'll be comedy gold. <laughs> well, for like 18 people, yes. Comedy gold. <laughs> But so yes, Kiss of a Demon King, the title finally matches the book. We are talking about Rydstrom, the deposed king of Rothkalina, the rage demon kingdom. And it's here, the book that everybody wants to talk about. We actually have a guest on this show. Jenny Nordback from the Wicked Wallflowers podcast is joining us for this. But it's interesting because... I gotta say, at the risk of everybody in the whole world being mad at me, this is not my favorite IAD book. I mean, unsurprising for everyone. But even if you take Rune, if you take Sweet Ruin out of the running, it's still not my favorite. It's not my favorite either. I appreciated it so much more the second time around. Mm-hmm. But I felt a little like I was faking it with some people after reading the first time. I was like, oh, yeah, everyone loves Sabine. But it was it was she's she's harder for me. I think she's a, um, a strong, amazing heroine, but one that's really challenging for me. And I think, though, that's also the makings of a great book. So mm-hmm. there's so much to talk about with this one. Right. So let's do a quick overview of the plot um, and then we'll come back to Sabine because I actually, as much as, as much as this, I should also qualify. Even my not favorite IAD book is like one of the best romance novels I've ever written. So like, let's just set that down. (laughs) Say like, everything's graded on a curve. Okay. (laughs) You did say one of the best romance novels you've ever written though. And I would suggest that that's the most amazing Freudian slip ever. (laughs) Did I say that? I think think so. Ever written. Oh, well, okay. I hope so. We'll go back to the tape. (laughs) One of the best romance novels I've ever written. One of the best romance novels I've ever written. One of the best romance novels I've ever written. When we left Rydstrom, well, actually, first things first, last week, our last episode, um, we talked about Cade and Holly and their book, (laughs) which is called Dark Desires After Dusk. You can't see Jen, but Jen's very proud of herself. So the title here, Kiss of a Demon King, is the first one that moves away from the structural titling that Jen figured out earlier in the podcast. This is the first one where there are no words shared between the prior book and this one. And the the trailing book, too, if you count Untouchable. 
Yeah. You do get Demon from the Dark after this. So yeah. it's, I'm not really clear in what order they were written. And you get it. The, the show Walter Cressley Cole duology is the deep kiss of winter. So you do get the kiss part. Anyway, doesn't matter. Point is, this the Kate and Holly's book, which is Dark Desires After Dusk, we talked about the fact that it feels in unfinished, that story, because it's a road trip where we're moving toward getting the sword that will kill the bad guy um, and restore the throne to Rydstrom and replenish Rothkalina and, um, you know, bolster the Vertas army. But mm -hmm. we don't see it come to fruition. Cade and Holly do their work and then Rydstrom and Sabine have to finish it. Um, and so last last podcast, we had sort of talked about the fact that maybe um, we would feel differently about Dark Desires After Dusk and about Kate and Holly once we had reread Kiss of a Demon King. And that absolutely happened for me. Oh, absolutely. Like I almost to the point where I think you and I were both like, should we go back and add a like an epilogue <laughs> yeah. where we mea culpa and say, oh, wait, no, because I and, and I think in that sense, um, we talked a lot about um, wicked deeds at a oh Jesus, <laughs> whatever the second book is with no rest for the wicked. Yeah, no rest for the wicked and um and oh Jesus, Sarah, whatever those books are called, with the one with what are we talking about? No rest for the wicked and wicked deeds on a winter's night. Yeah, I think those two also function as a pair, but we didn't feel like there was that sense that you really needed to read Bowen and Marikata's book to get. You know, it didn't really feel as incomplete in some ways. Mm -hmm. I feel like this one, they're really way more strongly paired. And I feel like I grow to like Cade so much more as I get the sense um, from Rydstrom for more of that backstory. Like, you get that other point of view. Mm -hmm. And Cade also, we see so much of Cade at the end of this book. Um, and maybe it's not so much page count Cade but like we see so much of Cade in the moment in his standing sort of in on his feet comfortable with himself believing in himself in a way that we don't see it in the last book um and we know other things too right Holly's pregnant with twins like they are happy they are moving forward with their lives Cade is happy and confident and 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 there's so much to love about the way this book puts a button on the last book. And I think, too, it's it's also really all romance readers want to revisit their old favorites. Mm -hmm. But it's very rare that you really get quite as much kind of character development for a previous couple in like another book like this without it sort of stealing the spot. I mean, I feel like it's just perfectly done. It's just the right yeah. amount of information. And it's giving us information too about Rydstrom because, you know, Rydstrom's always been the cool, calm, collected one. And then Cade is the one who really, um, <laughs> like by the end of this book is sort of like, uh, calm down, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, what you also, doing in there? Like, so Dark Desires After Dusk, Cade's entire internal conflict is how am I going to basically, like, pay Rydstrom back for what I've taken from him? How am I going to re return 
to brotherhood with him? How am I going to become his brother again and, and earn his love back? And we see that. And, and so the emotional push-pull in Kiss of a Demon King is very much about um, Cade having to choose between Rydstrom and Holly, right? And then at the end, we sort of get this hint that he no longer has to choose between these two things. But that hint is only given to us through the very concrete sword, right? Like he gets to have both. He gets the sword and Holly, the sword is a stand-in for Rydstrom. But in this book, we see Cade get Rydstrom. And that's a totally different experience. And I completely understand why she had to hold off on delivering that moment in that book, but it left readers, it left me at least, like really wanting this book to do a different kind of job than a romance novel typically does. Yeah. Do you know um, on Twitter, it's, it's, is it Super Wendy? Like Wendy the Librarian? Mm-hmm. She wrote a really interesting Oh, God, it was so good. And I'll link to it in show notes. Explanation about, like, when the HEA is believable. And she was like, it's not just that the characters have to sort of be in a happy place. It's that the world must be righted. And I think the thing that was so destabilizing about the end of Cade and Holly's book is the world is not righted. Cade is still not in a good place with his brother. We don't know what's happening with Rothgalina. And so that HEA just doesn't feel as good as it does at the end. Whereas at the end of this book, we get the closure on the world being righted. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was just an, like such a smart point. And I really, um, it's a way, it's just like this little piece of information that, you know, when an HEA isn't satisfying, but I'm okay with a couple, it's because something in their world isn't quite set yet. And I think that that's what this book provides for Cade, not really Holly as much, but Cade, and because we have to see that he's repaired not just his sort of own sense of self, but his relationship with his brother. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. that doesn't happen until this book. No, and I think and we it's have brilliant. To see, you know, remember also that in two books ago, in Naomi and Conrad's book, which is Dark Needs at Night's Edge. Well done. Um. <laughs> They there's that moment that we talked about last episode where Nyx says to the two of them, like, Kate is going to have to give up. Basically, she says, do you choose your mate or do you choose Rydstrom's crown? And Kate chooses Rydstrom's crown in that moment. And interestingly enough, like in that moment, Rydstrom chooses his crown and says, and I might add through this whole book, the Kiss of a Demon King, the... um, Rydstrom continually chooses his crown, continually chooses his people and the well and the house and the land and the everything, right? He has to. He has this, like, deep abiding loyalty to his – I mean, he's the heir, right? Like, he has no choice. This is all he's been born to do is protect Rothkalina, and he hasn't been able to do it. And But what we see at the end of this book is Rydstrom saying, I choose – I choose love, one – right over everything else but i also choose i still can choose rothgalina because i choose you Cade. i trust you 
with the future of this land should something terrible happen to me, which he fully expects to happen. Well, and also a big part, a fascinating part of the story is that Sabine turns out to be the exact right queen for Rothgalina. Mm-hmm. And so Rydstrom can't choose Rothgalina without also admitting that he needs his queen, that they, you know, his land is never going to be as whole or as healthy or as productive or as modern as, I mean, we get that return to modernity, that modernity right? modernity thing. Um, as, as it would be without her presence in mm-hmm. his life and in the lives of his people. And I think that that, in that sense, this book is really fully satisfying um, in a way that the previous book, like, left me hanging. Yeah. So all of that is to say, listeners, that... Um, we were right <laughs> and you should <laughs> we definitely right. if you're you know if you're listening ahead of your reading or i don't know what <laughs> i don't know why yeah. you would be listening ahead but if you are or if you've not started your reread and you're just listening because you love these books before and you do decide to do a read reread read these back to back yeah um, i wish that I wish, uh, I mean, as Jen said, we went around and around on how to tackle this. Um, but now I sort of wish, like, in hindsight, I I wish that we had, you know, done a double episode for these. Yeah, yes. And I'm going to say, though, like, counterpoint, this is how also they were written. I mean, pe- yeah. we looked it up. We were like, people waited. People waited seven months. Uh, um, Caden Cade Holly's book came out in May of 2008, and Rydstrom's book came out January of 2009. They waited seven months for the the finish. I mean, fine, but we don't have to. And we don't think. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag blessed. <laughs> As it is, I can't believe I started this series before it was over because now i'm just like tortured by the wait oh waiting is terrible i know and i know that my readers are tortured by the wait for my books too but i didn't like you know leave anybody burning in a fiery <laughs> tunnel or anything <laughs> crestly try it try it try it with your next book see report back on how that goes for the sarah mclean readers out there <laughs> oh my They're god the love amount it. of hate mail i would get um so okay i want to talk about modernity um because I do think that this is, I mean, we keep coming back to it, right? But Rothkalina, I mean, it's been left alone for hundreds of years, right? In the hands of this, like, evil wizard, sorcerer, uh, not Groot, Omort. Omort. The Deathless. The Deathless. Omart, okay, oh, wait, we were going to, I was going to give you an, I was going to do an overview of the plot of this book. You know what, though? I think we could make it really short. Yeah. All right, so if you're reading with us, you know where we are, right? Um, Kate has returned with the the sword that can kill Omort the Deathless, who is currently sitting, who is a sorcerer, who is sitting on the throne of Rothgalina, which is by all rights and biology, uh, Rydstrom's. Um, so Rydstrom and Cade have been spent have spent the last X number of hundreds of years looking um, toward taking this throne back, and here we are. Um, Rydstrom is about to help at the very beginning of Cade and Holly's book. He's supposed to go and meet Cade and go with Cade to get the sword. And instead, he runs his car off the road because a beautiful woman has um, <laughs> tempted him. He's He nearly hits her and he uh, swerves to avoid her. He runs his car off the road. She tempts him um, through the mist in sort of the bayou of Louisiana um, into a prison cell in another land. 
Um, right, which this- is, it's Rothgalina, right? He's, she essentially, it's a portal right back into his own dungeons. Right. So there we meet Sabine, Queen of Illusions. Um, and Sabine's magic, she's a sorceress, and her power is to make people see things that are not there, literally to create illusions. Yeah, and it's it's not just, um, like, vision, right? It, it seems pretty full. It's like entering the Star Trek holodeck, right? Like, so mm-hmm. you smell it and you see it and it's, like, completely 360 degrees around you. Um, and, and this is uh, – she's also – Omort's half sister. Right. And the sister, the full sister of Melanthe, who uh, we discover at the end of the book is the Queen of Persuasion. Um, and that will become relevant. Uh, Melanthe and Sabine have been pursued by reckoners um, for hundreds of years. Thousands of years. No, 600. Sabine has been, they've been alive since the last succession. It's been 500 years. Um, and they were chased as children. Um, they've been in hiding in Rothkalina where the Reckoners can't find them. Um, Omort has been told by prophecy that Sabine will be his wife, half brother. It's pretty gross, you guys. There's some, there is some like, like a little, a little content warning here on like the backstory of Sabine, I think, and Omart. Like, there's a definitely a kind of unsettlingly vile relationship between the two of them. Omart is a vile, vile character. Probably the most vile character of this. I mean, I will, I may change my mind over the course of the next however many books, but certainly so far, we haven't seen well, any. And I think part of the thing that makes him so villainous, and I think there's two things. One is um, he's very close. He's not just like a distant bad guy, right? He's very um, present. Yeah, he's very present. And he also, um, he controls Melanthe and Sabine with a poison. And essentially, he the, the way the poison works is you don't feel it until you're essentially detoxing from it. So they are tied to him. They, If they ever leave Rothgalina, they have to return every two or three weeks because if they don't get this poison, is it Morpheus? Something like that, right? That, that might be wrong, but whatever. Um, you know, and that part's really interesting because the like the diabolical nature of sort of the poison isn't present until you are, until you, I don't know, like it's almost like an, we talked about addiction with um, Conrad, but this is almost like an anti-addiction. It's very interesting the way it's Well, I works. mean, from a purely writing perspective, it's brilliant, right? This concept yeah. that you would be poisoned and not know you were being poisoned until you were no longer being poisoned. Like, Right. But my – I kept coming – first of all, you're absolutely right. This is part of why he's so vile. There's something like deeply insidious and – and incredibly troubling about this idea that family right because we're also talking about a book a series that is all about family and particularly these two books right these are this this duology is about um brothers and children and and sisters and found family you know holly finds her real family um, we start to see the creation of the Vertas army underneath Nyx, which is a family. And Cressley keeps coming back to this, right? Like we've just come off of three books about Roth brothers. So 
it feels very much like a betrayal as a for the reader like as you're reading it feels like suddenly you've met a family member or you've found a family that is deeply disturbed right and it's perverted in all the ways in in every definition of the word perverted right and so you have this brother figure who's also a little bit of a father figure because he's in, he's patriarchal in many ways and he has been damaging these girls for their entire life he's been poisoning them he poisoned yeah. their mind and and like you said you don't know that you've been poisoned until you come away from it and you have to work through the pain of detox, which is almost impossible. And I kept right. even it will like, even kill an immortal, right? Right. And I kept wishing that we had um, Adriana Herrera with us because it felt like domestic violence to me so purely. So yeah. it was such a clear a clear sort of metaphor for me. I mean, it's it's not just a metaphor. It's very, it's literal. But it's also just this sort of really intense reflection of what it is to be a child in a home where you are raised with this kind of abuse, where you're not actually sure that it's going on at all until it's, you're you're just in it and you're so far into it that it's it's created you, right? It's It's in your bones. When Adriana and I talked about domestic violence and the smart bitches, like one of the things was how dangerous it is. The most dangerous thing it for women in abusive homes is the escape. That presents the most, the absolute most dangerous time. And and so the poison is like a literal manifestation of that. Mm-hmm. For her to leave, will it will literally kill her. And and I think the the way that it impacts her. Her psyche, you know, I mean, I'm not a shrink, but like the way that she responds to people, um, the way that she responds to Rydstrom, her determination is only to save herself and her sister, which again, like the whole domestic violence angle, that felt very real to me. It, it, she was had a survivor's mentality right. and she could not care about things like Rydstrom's feelings. He was just an obstacle to her getting what she needed, which was to escape her Omort safely with Melanthe. And so what we end up with is a heroine who is deeply, deeply beloved by IAD readers, but who mm-hmm. is incredibly unlikable. And I hate that term, but I want to talk about it because I think many, many, I think for every reader who stands Sabine purely, there is probably a reader who cannot deal with her. Yeah. Because, so Sabine, the Queen of Illusions, has witched our, <laughs> has has witched one of our heroes, right? Rydstrom has been set up as a hero for many books. He saved Mariketta from the Incubi. He um, has been he was heroic during the Naomi and Conrad book. There has never been a moment where we haven't seen Rydstrom act in pure, unadulterated loyalty to good. And we end up here with um, Sabine bringing him into her lair, for lack of a better term, because we don't know the full story of her relationship. What we know at the beginning of this book is that she is queen of illusions. She is the half-brother to, like, the most evil character in the series. And 
there is speculation that she has had some sort of relationship with this man, even though we do know at this point that that's not true because she is a virgin. She is her virginity must be saved for Rydstrom, who is her fated mate. Right. So it's also an enemies to lovers story. And so Rydstrom gets into this this, you know, essentially a, a dungeon and he is we witched chains come back. Yeah. He does not gnaw his leg off. No. Um, because he can't. <laughs> and he's tied to a bed. And it was, I will admit that it was, I thought it was hard to read. It's tough. It's hard to read, um, not just for like consent issues, which I think are, are plentiful, but you know, you're used to some softness. Yep. For the main characters towards each other. And they are hard. Well, this is one of those uh, Fate of Mate stories. And is it the first one, really, where they truly hate each other at the start, right? So fate has thrown them together, and Sabine says she doesn't believe in fate, and Rydstrom is deeply connected to fate. For him, fate is everything, because he, demons get a, one single mate, and he knows, he knows the moment he sees her that she's his mate. Well, and I, I'm going to say the other thing that I think he also really hates about her is that she makes him question his goodness, right? Like, Rydstrom's this, like, I'm a noble, good character, and she thinks he's a chump, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she is constantly like, what, like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, and, and I think that that's the other thing that he profoundly hates about her. It's not just that she has him chained up in a bed and he's powerless, but that she also makes him deeply question what everything he believed to be true, not just about himself, but also back to Cade, like, right, who Cade is, what Cade owes him. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's another really destabilizing part of their relationship is is that she is constantly like, you think you're so good, but mm-hmm. maybe you're not. Well, and I think this brings us back to this question of unlikable heroines, right? I I don't use that term ever. I mean, I, I feel like when people say I've written unlikable her, I mean, I'm taking back the word here because I've written unlikable heroines. I've certainly gotten the reviews and people don't, you know, found some of found my heroines unlikable. And what typically happens is that people find heroines unlikable who are who refuse to cow to heroes immediately or who refuse to cow to others immediately. Um, selfishness and like self uh, self-preservation and self-confidence are often the hallmarks of an unlikable heroine. And Sabine is all of those things, right? She is, um, you know, I- I've said this to you before, but I feel like at the very beginning of this book, Sabine is really dormant in terms of she's she's so, her emotions have been so deeply suppressed because of the life that she has been forced to live over the last um, few centuries that her cold calculating activity on behalf of herself and her sister is pure pure loyalty but only to only to the two of them and everything else is sacrificed I would add Sabine knows from page one of this book and has known for hundreds of years that Rydstrom is her only shot at love right and chooses yeah. and puts it at, I mean this is irrelevant to her. She chooses her life 
and future over any uh, technically she chooses her and Melanthe's life and future over her own happiness well and in that way it's kind of like when Nyx makes ask Rydstrom which would you choose she never asks Sabine that but it's pretty clear what Sabine's choosing and I think that's also part of the domestic violence angle um what what man is going to convince her that he is trustworthy, that he is going to do what he says, that, right? Like there, there's no way that she would trust any, anyone after Omort, um, except Melanthe, who essentially has lived through it with her, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they have a shared, um, the shared past and, and that's all that really matters to her. And I do think that that's why ultimately, although I, I, I found her behavior kind of hard to reconcile I also think that this is really a book about like a radical forgiveness right or radical acceptance mm-hmm. and that like we just are what our pasts make us and if you really believe that to be true then there's no way that Sabine given what she's gone through which is not just what she's done with Omar but these many times she's been killed and brought back to life she is not going to be any I mean, she's hard as a diamond for a reason and and ultimately, she wouldn't be a believable character if she was anything but like a, a shards and shards and shards and shards of glass. And I think one of the themes in this book that I I kept coming back to was um, this theme of motherhood um, and ch- the, the relationship between mother and child because um, – this is so again, and I'm I'm going to keep referring to it as a duology because I do think the two books belong together. In Kate and Holly's book, um, there's you know obviously Holly is about to have a, a warrior of she's Holly is the vessel right, um, and she's about to birth the a warrior of either complete good or complete evil right. So by the end, we know that Holly is about to birth a warrior, two warriors of pure good, right, to fight on the side of the Veritas. Um, we know Sabine is about to have a child, too, and the child will be born of Rydstrom because it must be, in order for the kingdom of Rothgalina, for the, the denizens of Rothgalina to accept this child, he it has to be an heir to Rydstrom, to the kingdom. And we also know that this child is about to open something called the Well of Souls, that this child's birth will open this well of souls that is sort of a mulligan. There's no... Right. It's another thing that Cressley puts on the page and, like, potentially will need it in the future, right? Um, But every faction of the lore has a view of what this thing might be. Um, But that's kind of all irrelevant because Sabine... What's relevant is that Sabine having this child, this child coming from Sabine, is an important piece of this puzzle, Right. She it has to be born of her. The prophecy is that it will be born of her and that she will whatever comes of it um, of this child, whatever comes of this child's birth is going to be Sabine's responsibility. So she's sort of decided I'm going to have this kid. I'm going to get rid of all these other men. These horrible, like Omort's going to go and Rydstrom's going to go and I'm going to be queen and Mm -hmm. I'm going to I'm going to start fresh. Right. 
And at the same time, there are all these echoes of motherhood, right? So she's she starts to think about this child and her responsibility to the child and her responsibility with her child, like almost like legacy building, right? Yeah. And then you start to see these flashbacks of their mother teaching them how to survive, right? How to how to live in the world. And there's a, there's a whole nother the sorcerer. I have a whole nother um, obsession with gold in this book and Sabine's mother has taught her constantly like it was drilled into their heads that they protect gold that gold is the most precious thing that they could possibly have again again it feels so modern my mom (laughs) um growing up so growing up all my whole life my mother um would talk to us about how like she saved like my mother saved money like like hid money around the house she had she had hidden accounts she had like and when I got married she pulled me aside at my wedding and she said um you should always have an account like a go bag like a go account and this like sort of this is such a female way I think of thinking about like money as power and money as your potential for escape like with money, you can get out, right? Should you need to. And um, I think that's really interesting. And the fact that her mo- Sabine's mother is the reason why that exists. And then there's another, there's a child in this book. There's another child. There's an orphan child. Right. Yeah. And I thought that was fascinating because, of course, Sabine loves this boy, but but pretend she doesn't right like she calls she calls him names and you know but like it's every everyone else sees how she feels about him um and it's a really like poignant sort of like unraveling of her right because when she can nurture someone else it's this signal that she is like letting go of the the fierce control she needed to like escape omort and now she has like this room, this tiny little bit of room in it for, for someone else other than her and Melanthe. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's funny because we are talking about just like kids in general. And then in Caro's book, which is, you know, we get the novella next. But in Caro's book, there's also a child that must be protected. And so this is like a really interesting um like the child that you're destined to have, the child that comes across you accidentally, and then the child that's in your care and that's your responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting how like motherhood or like motherly instincts and fatherly instincts, parenting instincts really come into play in all of those different scenarios. I also think uh, part of the joy of that. So I don't, I don't, I don't really have opinions about motherhood in books or children in, in romance novels. It's, um, but I think there's a moment where Sabine, Sabine can also mine dreams, right? She can actually enter a person's head and, right, like some projection kind of thing happens, and show them and see or show them their like deepest fear. Like it's one of her, it's one of her most powerful tools. Again, she. She has no special 
She has she doesn't have super strength. She's no like sorcerer. Sorcerer, I have no special powers um, physically. But she's pretty scrappy. But she's like that's strong, because she's learned to be that way. Exactly. Right? Um, but she's certainly not as strong as many other characters in the lore. And so her her defense mechanism is to be able to show you your, your nightmares. Um, and therefore, she can also show you your dreams, right? Your your hopes. And at one point, she shows, she mines Rydstrom's actual dreams as he's dreaming. And she yeah. sees him see her with a child, with their child, their fated child. And it's really powerful. It's a really poignant moment. She's shocked. To her toes and we are too right as readers kate claiborne hi kate we're mentioning you again she texted jen and i you know not long ago while she was reading and she she was like there's a there's a kid in this book and this is a sort of shocking addition to the iad world these these two books feel like they're about they're they're like the pinnacle of that family story well, and it to me, it kind of makes sense because, I mean, we've talked about immortality a lot, but what's your immortality worth if you don't have family? So we get a lot of family, like in terms of siblings, mm-hmm. but we know that the accession brings people together as well. And that, like the, for many, many couples, the natural outcome of that family thing is going to be children. And, and and certainly not for all of them, but um, and and I think sometimes it surprises some characters the way they feel about kids. It, you know, I mean, and I I th- I think that this in that sense, I think it's a kind of a trilogy with Caro's book, like sort of bookending it, which is you know like children come into our lives in unexpected ways. Even, you know, like, and, and that's kind of with all of them. Like, you're going to have one. Oh, no, it's twins. Here's this boy. Here's, you know. So I do think that there's some ways in which um, if you're talking about immortality and your immortal life, is there still a desire or urge to have children or to have progeny or to pass on your IAD DNA or whatever it is, right? Yeah. And I think that's like an interesting I don't know. It's it is. It's like a. It feels like it has to happen in this section too. Because if we're talking about deathlessness or like dying, mm. then new life is its like natural other right. Like it's it makes sense that that would like counterbalance um, all the talk of like real actual death that could happen to these immortals. Well, of course, then you're going to bring up new life too. Sure, and also this idea that like this it it reflects the poison too that's happening constantly with with her is um this idea that that she could she could die at any time she's literally at she is always being prepared for death and at the same time she is she has literally been kept ready for life her whole life um so that dichotomy is really interesting and then of course there's there is the sort of ultimate the ultimate conflict which is sabine is kind of a bitch and you don't think of her as being maternal she's she's right. none of she is none of the classic traits of you know of motherhood at all and then suddenly she, of course she's the one who cares the most about it and i i think that that's 
interesting because there's that you know there's a lot of things still though that like i have a big like er question marks about like her and melanthe have some servant slash yeah i don't love that she has they have slaves and they never call them by anything but slave which i sort of was like oh she has slaves i don't love that but i'm sure she's gonna be like friendly with them and kind to them and she's decent with them but like they're still slaves. She does release them at the end. She frees yeah, them. Yeah, it's, it's really kind of gross. Like, it's, yep. it's very gone with the wind, like, the way that we're supposed to sort of believe that because they care so much about their slaves, they're, like, good masters. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was really, um, it's kind of like how I feel about, like, Harry Potter and the house elves. It's like, oh, God, why are we doing this? Um, but I think in one, and, and the reason I bring it up, too, is because one of the most um a, a, like a scene I'd like us to talk about because I'm really curious about what you'd think as a writer I know kind of how it felt as a reader is um one where in a it, like a they have a, a fight I guess whatever she's furious and she is still in the driver's seat well it's cat versus cat right the whole book is cat versus cat two incredibly strong people fighting the whole way with fate sort of pushing them together but she um, like flounces out and she's really pissed and she is going to have these male slaves um, bathe Rydstrom. And it's kind of home. I say kind of. It is homophobic. I think there was some, it, you know, he clearly is really, he views it as a, as violating, right? Yeah, I agree with you that I felt that way. I was like, oh, what's happening here? This is not great. Um. <sighs> At no point is it about the fact that the slaves are male. Well, except to Rydstrom. Is it to him in the book? I mean, she says, essentially, I, from what I remember, like, I know he'll hate this. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Right? I mean, but it is, an, it is, a, it is absolutely a violation. Maybe, I mean, it doesn't really matter. I'm trying to parse all the reasons why it felt squicky. Yeah, well, for me, it felt squicky largely because of consent. Here's here's my thing. I feel like Cressley as an as an author is really fearless. And I feel like we've talked a lot about how she will like if she sets up the play, she's going to play it. And this is a, a scene where I felt like she balked because it happens off stage. We get this like Sabine saying like, oh, I was going to call them back but before i could rides from essentially fought them off um he i mean she he's drugged but in previous scenes where he's been drugged he's been out and in this scene it's just like he's still aware and i found myself wondering and and maybe this is like a question like to a writer right to you is like what do you do when your character is gonna do something that you yourself as an author do not have the will to put on the page I think this is a tricky situation. I'm 100% with you. It doesn't work the way I think. I don't know if it was. I don't know how it was intended to work. It's one of the rare moments in these books where I couldn't see the purpose of it. Because we haven't seen. So, okay. Sabine and Rydstrom are at each other's throats through most of this book, right? We should say immediately following this scene, Rise from Escapes, steals Sabine, takes her back to his lair, ties her to a bed, and then proceeds to, like, continue 
the whole experience there. So, I mean, what I'm what I want to say is that it doesn't it doesn't work. I don't know what it was intended to be. I think that I do think it's very clearly marked on the page that Sabine never intended it to get as far as it does, but I don't know that that matters. It's one of those situations where I can't go back to 2009 and read it then with the lens from 2009. So, which maybe would have mattered, like maybe that would have changed the thing. Yeah. I think that in this particular case though, it was one of those moments where I would imagine I'm like, what the hell do I know? Because I didn't write these books. Um, but I would imagine that she was thinking, like, how do I ramp it up, 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 right? Because what the beauty of this book is that every time the two of them get to a place, it's so peaked and valleyed, right? They, the, I mean, the entirety of their torture relationship is sexual, right? It's all edging. Every Every moment, so they can't have actual physical intercourse until they are married. And in order for them to get married, Rydstrom has to take a vow, um, speak a vow aloud, um, which he refuses to do for the large for the first part of the book. So there's a lot of like sexual energy and sexual edging that's going on, and it's ramping up. And then every time it sort of comes to a peak, it then valleys into a conversation where the two of them start to become, you know into each other like they start to know each other and care like oddly care for each other and then it peaks again in valleys right it's really interesting it's a master class in how to like continually amp up conflict this is the moment where the entire story turns on its head and Rydstrom is motivated to like she's gone too far Rydstrom loses his nobility right after this and then ends up being the villain of the last of the you know second third of the book so as this is happening it feels like well how could I do like as a writer right one of the questions we ask all the time is um you know what's the worst possible thing that can happen do that and like maybe that's it but I don't see any evidence early in the book that this is the worst thing that can happen to to Rydstrom Right. Right. Yeah. And that's the part, I guess, you know, and that's okay. I just wanted us to talk about it. It it no longer works. I will give you that. It no longer works. And, you know, you're right. It is a um, it's it's clearly a very it's a it's intended to be a sexual experience. I don't think it would have worked at all if she hadn't thought to herself. I'm going to stop them. Right. If if it was done fully with intent to let it go forward Sabine would have been lost to readers, I think. She has this moment where she thinks, I'm going to stop it. And then she doesn't stop it, right? Because something else happens. And I think we are meant as readers to see that as, well, it wasn't so bad. Right. Whether right. or not that but, works is a different thing entirely. So, yeah, I mean, I we texted about it with Kate and you and I really wanted to talk about it. And I just think it's like a... You know, it just feels like a scene, like I said, where I really see in a way that I'm not used to in these books, Cressley pulling back from the scene, Sabine pulling back from the scene, right? Everybody's pulling back from it because it's terrible. (laughs) It's a terrible thing to do. Yeah. And so at the same time, I feel like, I mean, it's real ballsy. You don't know where the edge is as a writer until you're there. Yeah. And... That's not a defense because, I mean, we're like we all have to take responsibility for what we've put in a book. But I mean, I wish I 
I wish I were more courageous sometimes. It's Yeah, it's interesting. It's just an interesting moment in the book. Also, I would just say, we're about to come up on Lothair and um, McGreeve and a lot of heroes. I want to come back to this, Jen, like in future episodes, because we're about to come up on some heroes who do some really fucking awful shit to heroines and we forgive yeah. them. Right? I mean, what Lothair does to his heroine is unacceptable. Yeah. On a number of levels. And we are like, Lothair's the best. Woo. Yeah. Right? Like, so I want us to, this is coming back to this question of, like, I want us to, like, really soul search on unlikability and what we won't stand for from heroines, but we will stand for from men, uh, heroes. I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a really good point. And I, like I said, I think it's interesting that not only are we bucking, but like I said, it felt like Cressley did too. Yeah. Well, wait a second. Also, yeah, okay, I'm sorry. I'm changing my whole mind here. I'm talking myself through it now. Because we're about, we're going to come, we're going to, we're going to go through Thronos, Declan Chase, Lothair, McReeve. I mean, that's, those, all of the, all four of those heroes do unconscionably bad things to their heroines. Yeah, and they're um I I love Lothair and it but I, the other three are not my favorites. Like they're they're in they're in the they're in the bottom for me. I don't necessarily I I need to sort of revisit two of those four, but Lothair and McCreeve, I lo- I adore both of those books. And so I'm I'm eager for us I would like for us to just put this on the list for us to like check in every book on like have they been worse than Sabine or better than <laughs> Sabine, right? Like, because I don't want to hold Sabine up to a different standard. Well, and it's a really interesting question about, like, not only are we holding her up to a different standard, but um, what is her standard for herself? And her standard for herself is, like, winning, right? Like, I have to get out of here, survival at any cost. And in light, in that light, Doing whatever it takes with Rydstrom is a price she's willing to pay. Yeah. And I don't, I, I'm really, now I'm sort of, I'm, I've like confused myself. No, but I think that's what we're here for. I mean, I think these middle books really do ask a lot of really hard questions about um, how, what, how can you treat someone you're going to spend the rest of your life with? What's forgivable and what isn't? Mm-hmm. Um, when you do make a massive mistake, what kind of restitution is required? How do people change when they make mistakes? Um, what does it mean to have parity and payback? Um, is revenge the same thing as justice and fairness? I mean, all of these books really start to grapple with it. And I think it's why this series, to me, uh, make this is a turning point in the series where I think that those first five or six books are, or however many are kind of standard paranormal fare. And this to me is a book that is entirely different and asking an entirely different set of questions. Which is part of why I enjoy it so much. One of the things that we've been talking about is the um, Wicked Wallflowers uh, spreadsheet. 
Oh, yeah. So Wicked Wallflowers, for those of you who uh, are just learning about it, the Wicked Wallflowers, which is a sister podcast of ours, um, they uh, have loved IAD as long as we've loved IAD. And Jenny is going to join us right after this and uh, talk about Sabine and Rydstrom. And one of the things that um, they are doing is they have a public Google spreadsheet um, where where readers can just rank their favorite heroes and heroines in the series. And one of the things that I think is really fascinating about this is um, you get to sort of have a real sense of who loves what and where the similarities are, you know, in the way that the heroes and heroines are grouped. However, what's missing from that spreadsheet is the love of a book versus the love of the hero and heroine. And I yeah, think this sure. is one of those books where I probably don't love the hero or the heroine as much as I love others in the series, but I do love this book. I love the way she wrote this book. It's, it is. It's like a fascinating look into the psyche, the collective psyche of IAD readers. Also, we get a lot of horns in this book. Yes. And I do love a horn, as we know. I was all about the horns until you sent me all those wackadoodle photos. And then I was like, (laughs) none of this is sexy. Although. False. Tim Curry as the darkness is super sexy. (laughs) I am not joking. I'm not. Yeah. I forgot, though, if there's any comics readers out there, Saga is an amazing comic. And the hero at the beginning, he's a, a horned guy and he's like super cute and they have a cute little horned baby so i think that this is a place where we need to put out a call to our listeners because we seem to be at an impasse on what these horns look like so (laughs) if you have a picture or a drawing if you'd like to draw us if you feel arty today like um if you'd like to draw us what you think these horns look like and just tweet us the picture or post it on Instagram or like you can secretly send it to us on Instagram and we'll post it on our Instagram. Um you can go to our Instagram feed which is um Faded Mates Pod and look at the horn photos <laughs> that I flooded Jen's texts with the other night. Um but I and and just you know let us know what's sexy, what's not sexy, what do these horns look like? We're also we put it on the list for Cressley when she joins us for Q and A. Um, we're gonna get to the bottom of horns, but I still think horns are sexy. I think being able to steer using horns is super sexy. It's pretty sexy. I'm still there. Well, speaking of sexy, we should introduce our guest today because <laughs> she is really uh, we I think both of us are blown away by how interesting um and compelling her um take on Sabine is and her like what like what a personal connection she has to it, which is something we've alluded to, but um I think it's a a great interview and we're really looking forward to having Jenny join us for what's now turning into like a supersized Kiss of a Demon King episode. Fine. I regret nothing. It's like a Babysitter's Club Summer Spectacular. Did you read those when you were young? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I sure as hell did. Scholastic Book Club forever. (laughs) I want to have a Scholastic Book Club for like faded mates. That's a good idea. We'll call Pocket. Hey, Pocket. (laughs) We want to do a special faded mates sale. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, so without further ado, um, this is our interview with Jenny. (laughs) <laughs> well, welcome to Fate of Mates, Jenny. We're so excited to have you. I'm excited to be here. Did we meet through IAD? I feel like I feel like we've 
we've known each other for a while, but like IAD is really like how we became faded mates. It's the glue that holds us together. That was when we kind of all knew we were a coven where it was like, yes, this, like we are a little bit insane about this and you're my people. When Jen and I decided that we were going to do this podcast and commit a year of our lives and all of your lives to this, um, we knew instantly that we, of course, needed to have you and Sarah on. And so tell us how you came to IAD. And let's talk, too, about the fact that you were instantly like, this one, kiss of a demon king. Well, and and you had to fight for it. Like, I actually think I there was like a face-off moment where I was like, okay, Thunderdome this out. Prove to us that you <laughs> should be the one to talk about Sabine and Rydstrom. Yeah, I threatened to take Joanna Shoop out. I was like, this is my book. <laughs> and and that's fine because Joanna Shoop is going to come on and talk about Bonkers Romance with us another time. Yeah, and that's great because I got Sabine and she's mine. <laughs> Um, so I start, I mean, my reading of IAD is tied to my co-host, Sarah, because we were roommates in college, and that's when we discovered Cressley Cole, and just, I'm trying to think how many books, I mean, it was about this one was when we started reading, so we binged up to this point, and we're just like, this is bananas, and we need more, and probably reread them all six times while we were waiting for each next one to come out, and so... This particular book for me was personal because that last year of college, I started working as a dominatrix and I had no idea what I was doing. Like it's pretty much on the job training. Like you just get thrown into a room with some dude and they're like, intimidate him and like make this, there's this like persona you're supposed to have or like humiliate him or whatever. And you're like, I don't, I don't know how to do that. Like these are the things I've been told my whole life I'm not supposed to do. And I had just read this book and I was like, I know how to do this. So I would literally sit in the dressing room and read her scenes before I was going into like a new session or something I was really intimidated by. And I was like, channel her, channel Sabine, like become that energy. And I would like use her lines sometimes. (laughs) I just feel like we could wrap up this entire podcast right now with that information. That's amazing. A client would be like, you're so beautiful. And I would be like, I know. And just be like channeling her 100%. And that was exactly, I mean, she is a dominatrix. Like that's her persona. So it was so perfect that it came into my life at that moment. And like, I think I very much crafted my Mistress Scarlet persona to match Sabine and tried to channel that as much as possible. This is a good time for everyone to know that Jenny has written a book about this time in her life. And I don't know if it references IAD because I actually just ordered it today. Um, But it's called The Scarlet Letters, The Secret Year. No, My Secret Year of Men in an L.A. Dungeon. Yeah. Hilariously, they made me take that reference out because they were like, this is insane. And no one has any idea what you're talking about. (laughs) Excuse me. (laughs) Yeah, because everyone always asked me, like, how do you, you know, how do you learn that? And I had, like, there was half a chapter dedicated to, like, explaining that it, and it's nuts that, like, a romance novel was teaching me how to be a dominatrix. Pull that out of the draft and put it on your website. Because I, for one, would be super interested in reading that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You should. All right. I will go find it. Yeah, if only Faded Mates had been out then and I could have been like, see, all these other people are bonkers too and they do know what I'm talking about. Yeah, also, I'm sorry, but by then, like, it was a thing. And also, by the time you wrote your book, Cressley was a thing, so. Yeah. But anyway, thank you for publishing Jenny's book, St. Martin's, We Love You. (laughs) 
<laughs> um, so, okay, well, let's dive in then. So we know already that you have an affinity for Sabine, but here's my question. Did you have an affinity for Sabine before the job? To- oh, well, I guess you wouldn't know because you were reading it while the job was, while no, you were on I, the job. I think it came out like the year before I started working there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was just drawn to her. I mean, she's such an anomaly it, it, to anything else I had read up to that point and just like owns everything about her personality and has been through so much, but like that's made her tougher and stronger and more ruthless. And yeah, there were just everything about her I was drawn to. Which I love. Jenny, one of the questions I was thinking like you might be really like well-suited to talk about and you sort of did at the beginning is like, what are we to make of like Rydstrom and Sabine's like like sex life and her like pulling his like his I don't know he wants to control her but like he wants her to fight him like did that seem similar or different from other heroes and heroines like this was kind of a more BDSM book in a way yeah it's so funny as I was rereading this time I I kept coming across moments that I was like marking or getting excited about I was like I wonder if Jen hates this because BDSM is like not your this cup was, of tea necessarily was, it's not this was pretty light I was I was into it it was fine so and I feel like these are the elements of BDSM that people sort of overlook and get caught up in the like it's about beating people or it's about pain it's really about power dynamics and that's yeah. just masterfully executed in this book like that power exchange between like who physically has power and yet often one of them can be chained up and still in control and like that, the shadow between that and like a submissive and a dominant where like you are playing at the dominant being in control, but in giving them that power, you're actually in control. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you're doing it responsibly, you have a safe word and can always stop things. And ultimately they're doing it to please you. So like who is really, who has the power? And that's what I've always just found so fascinating about that world and and maybe is another one of the reasons that I love this book so much because it's just constant, like it's flipping on its head and like, you know, she gets into his head and can see that his fantasy is not only, you know, he doesn't just want to like have the power. He wants her to fight him. Like she, he doesn't want her to just give it up and like bend over and take it. And she's what I I kept marking in my notes that she's a Sam is what we would call it a smart ass masochist like she <laughs> eggs him on and at every turn is just like goading him into more and he yeah. can kind of tell but like as a dominant you, it's really difficult not to get sucked into that because you're like oh like you are getting me worked up and <laughs> but, well but and if I, I turn best... you over my knee and spank you then I'm <laughs> giving you what you want so you are actually having power over me and it just yeah it's fun sorry what were I, you gonna say no I thought it was amazing but I also thought like okay we have joked extensively about how like everyone is preternaturally gifted at fucking in these books their first time having <laughs> sex is terrible it's awful. and she yeah. is like oh, so oh you are terrible at this and Isn't I was her like, first comment like I waited 500 years for this <laughs> yeah yes. perfect Perfection. yes and I was like and I just thought that was so amazing because it was so different from what we've seen in every other book so far and i love how her sister was like well it's probably just because he's big (laughs) oh my god and there's so much but it's too big it's too big it's too big it won't fit in this book too (laughs) so much and it's the first time of of that 
Like, it, I feel like this is the first of the books where there's, like, a real deal it won't fit conversation. Like, yeah, there's Emma, actual... Maybe? Maybe, know, but definitely. Sabine is so different because she's like, oh, fuck, no, that's not going to fit. <laughs> like, that's true. That's true. <laughs> it is like, um, so somebody on Twitter was talking about this and they echo, they called out the Sex in the City episode where Samantha is with some guy and he's like, oh, poor me, like no one wants to sleep with me because, you know, it's too big. And she's like, please, I'm Samantha. What are you talking about? And then he takes his pants off and she's like, no, no, now we just have to be friends. <laughs> It's too big. So yeah, it's it. What's amazing about it is that even you know, and this is this is one of the hardest things to do when you're writing romance, is like sex can't. Sex has to change the the dynamic of the story, but it can't change the character. Like you can't be like, oh, and now they had sex, and she's like a totally different person now. And Cressley never does that, but it's uh, really great that it's terrible sex to begin with. Well, and I love that she's a virgin heroine but she's not inexperienced and when he like calls her out for that or anyone calls her out for it she's like whatever like I can give a blowjob I can and I think I just appreciated that like sex is not all about penis and vagina right so like she's probably been having better experiences and that the first time that that happened she's like this is not doing it for me like no thank you I have not been missing anything (laughs) I have an I have a follow up question to all of this, Jenny. Would we, because as I think both of you know, like my super romance kink is the alpha submissive because it's very and it's super rare. But I kept getting that feel here. Like, would we call Rydstrom an alpha submissive? Ooh, I probably wouldn't. No, maybe it would make sense for what your definition of it is. But he is pretty clean cut dominant to me. Really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, whatever. It scratched my itch. So maybe it's, maybe that's not what my itch is. (laughs) I think we may have even talked about this in the past, but like people tend to mislabel alpha and think it's this sort of like caveman thing. And really it's the things that he constantly falls back on of like, he wants to be protector and caretaker and nurturer. And like, those are the traits that I see in a dominant. They want to care for their submissive. And like he he likes that she's a Sam, a smart-ass masochist. Like, he wants some sass from her. He doesn't just want someone who's like, you know, please take me, as he's always had. Um, I had a note to bring up the fact that when she dives into his head and projects his fantasies onto the wall, his fantasies are of her. And she makes the comment that, like, it could have been anything. It could have been, like, something really freaky. It could have been someone he was with in the past or her with other women or, or, or. And it's just, like, him with her. And this is really sad, but I remember at the time finding that really unbelievable. I didn't think you could be with someone who actually fantasized about you. And I was like, oh, that's, you know, like we all watch porn and whatever. And there's nothing wrong with fantasizing about porn or other people or whatever. But it just, I had never been with someone where I was their fantasy. And, you know, college Jenny was just like saddened by that. But now rereading it, adult married Jenny is like, fuck yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or yeah. Or like the part where he fantasizes about her, them with a a baby, right? About like those simple pleasures about being a family and like raising your kids and I just melted 
at that oh, one God, where yeah. like too. he's at the window and there's a there's an, a storm on the ocean and he turns around and she's sleeping with their baby and like yeah oh my god i don't even like babies in romance i barely I like babies in life <laughs> but i will tell you you guys the, the one time i remember daryl really looking at me like he couldn't believe how beautiful i was was when i was holding our baby Oh, yeah, I'm going to kill that moment by saying I was reading that while I was up nursing in the middle of the night and I went, fuck that fantasy. She's sleeping. The baby's sleeping. That's not a thing. Um, So can we do a limb count? (laughs) Well, I don't know. Jenny, I don't know if while you were reading, you were counting a limb count, but you could stay with us for it. (laughs) I was like. Does his severed spine count? I think so. It wasn't actually removed. I do. I mar- I marked it, and I made um, and I marked the torso cracking open. Yes. So the ripping sure. open of the torso. It seemed like there were some limbs, and then I didn't know if it if it counted because I think we've really only been counting main characters. Mm-hmm. But later on in the book, and I'm trying to find my notes. Oh, here it it's is. Thronos. Thronos's foot is severed, and yes. and since Thronos becomes a hero, I think we should count it. Yeah, Jenny, I think do so you have too. opinions on limbs? I I think you count it. Yeah, <laughs> I've I've forgotten about it. I was like, I guess I'm just counting the spine. What a disappointment! It was still in there, and then I was like, oh, good. Here's the foot. My other friend Kelly, not not Kelly, are like my my best friend and button designer and logo designer. Another friend of mine, Kelly, has been reading the Arcana Chronicles, mm-hmm. which is her YA series, which apparently is still pretty racy. And she said there's some lost limbs in there, too. And did I want them to count? Did she want, you know, do I want her to count them? <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, what have I wrought? <laughs> That's so perfect. Yeah, I've read that series, too. <laughs> So, yeah, I had the same thing. The spine, the torso, and Thronos's foot as a bonus. I actually questioned if the plucked organs counted as bonuses for this book. Oh, interesting. It didn't happen on page, so I did not count them. The, it was like a wreath of entrails. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, Merry Christmas. <laughs> um, This, you guys, this has been amazing. I'm Jenny, I'm so glad you joined us for this. I'm so glad. I love chatting with you guys. And I'm also so glad that you have um that you saved the story of how you came to this book for this oh, podcast. Oh, for our podcast. I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm going to have to go dig it up from past computer hard drive somewhere. But yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it's been emailed to someone. <laughs> so Jenny and Sarah Holly, who will be joining us for Dark Sky, I think, right? No, uh, Sarah Holly is coming in for the Declan Chase special, <laughs> Dreams of a Dark Warrior. Hello. <laughs> the Declan Chase We were like, special. who the fuck is going to talk to us about this guy? Sarah Hawley. If new readers have not even come close to Declan Chase and... It's a real, it's a thing. It is. <laughs> it's a real thing. Bat shit enough that it's like Sarah's brand, that that's her favorite <laughs> IAD. Agreed. So Jenny and Sarah Holly host an amazing podcast. If you haven't listened to it, it is called The Wicked Wallflowers. You can go download it on your favorite podcasting app, just like you download us. And yeah, if you love Jen and Sarah, and I know you do because you're listening, you could start with their episodes. In oh, fact, yeah. they oh, both have multiple we- episodes. That's true. <laughs> so remember how we said at the beginning that you shouldn't start with Warlord Wants Forever because it's a novella and you just shouldn't. You should come back to us. We, we would bring you to novellas later. Well, it's our novella episode in two weeks. So 
your reading is The Warlord Wants Forever. Um, there are two versions of A Wall Warlord Wants Forever. Jen, what have we decided? We want them to read the most recent version. Yeah, I think so. But I so it's confusing. There it the original Warlord Wants Forever was part of a small anthology where there were like three books. One was like Jade Black and it was Cressley Cole and I forget the other person. Um we'll put it in show notes. If you happen to have it, don't buy it again. But then it got released separately as Warlord Wants Forever with like a sort of IAD cover and you should if you're if you're buying it new, just get that one. Yes. Or from your library. You should also know that um, if you read that old version, there are going to be some issues. Um, and those issues have apparently been played with in the new version. Can I tell you another fun fact, though, about Warlord Once Forever? Sure. The original audiobook narrator for that was not Robert Peckoff. I know, because I've listened to that audio. It was two narrators. It was a male narrator and a female narrator. Well, and they had him re-record it. So I have listened to it with Robert Peckoff. Nice. So. I might do that too because I didn't love the male-female switcheroo. Mm, yeah, I know other people do that and I, I don't love it. Um, but And then the second novella is uh, Cressley Cole's Untouchable, which is in a duology called The Deep Kiss of Winter. The second novella in that is by Gina. So added bonus, if you've never read, read a Gina Walter book, you can read a novella by her there. Am I the only one who calls it in my brain frozen IAD? <laughs> no, but now that's what we're calling it. Yeah. For sure. Um, so that's two weeks, your two novellas. Um, that's your homework. And then, uh, Jenny, tell us, besides uh, the Wicked Wallflowers, where else uh, they can find you? Yeah. I mean, you can find the Wicked Wallflowers on the various social media platforms. We are at WCKD Wallflowers because there's not enough characters to spell it out. And then you can also find me personally as Jenny Nordback. And my last name is N-O-R-D-B-A-K. There's no C. Everyone's brain wants to put a C in there. Well, thank you for coming. Thank you for listening to Fate of Mates, everyone. Please, if you like this episode, make sure to subscribe and uh, like us and review us wherever podcasts are sold. <laughs> or given away for free. <laughs> exactly. That's an important clarification. Someone told me recently that they thought subscribe meant like purchase a subscription. Oh, oh. no, that's not true. We are free. To be clear, subscribe does not mean you're paying anything. It's still no. free. It just means it shows up automatically in your ear holes. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. I'm going to derail this really quick. I made my husband listen on the way. We had like a four-hour drive out to go camping, and I made him listen because I wanted to make sure I had like listened and knew what I was doing. And he was the same thing. He was like, this sounds so academic. Like, this is about – and then he was like, what the fuck is that? Like, he not is what? <laughs> That went off the rails immediately. <laughs>